2019. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. Our guest today is Sarah Hopp. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Sarah is assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacology and the Glenn Biggs Institute for Alzheimer's and Neurodegenerative Diseases at UT Health San Antonio. Uh, she's got a brand new research program in its first year that's revving up to use all kinds of tools to look uh, at the role of microglia and inflammation pathways in the progression of Alzheimer's disease and aging. Her work leverages so many things, uh, transgenic animal models, behavior analysis, cell culture, imaging, protein biochemistry, flow cytometry, immunohistochemistry, <laughs> and pharmacological <laughs> and genetic manipulation of microglia-specific pathways. So today it's just me and Charlie Wilson at the table. Hi, Charlie. Hi. So let's hit it. Okay, so one line of your work focuses on how microglia interaction with tau pathology is based on the spreading intraneurally of misfolded tau seeds. And, and that's so interesting, and I, and I hope you tell us a little bit about that more generally. But what is very interesting about it from your work is that you're extending this to non-neuronal uh, cells and maybe looking at microglia, how they may be the culprit and the source of some of this seeding mechanism that is maybe initiating or progressing at least Alzheimer's pathology. So um, can you tell us about tau seeds and, and how that mechanism progresses and how microglia are involved in, in, in the story? Yeah, so tau seeding is somewhat new in the field of tau biology. So we know that tau tangles have been found in neurons and people with Alzheimer's disease for a long time, first observed in the early 1900s. Um, and then later on, we kind of started noticing that the tau pathology was kind of spreading in this pattern that suggested it was going from neuron to neuron. So it starts in one region, progresses to another region that's connected um, via neurons um, and synapses. And Does so it start in the nose? <laughs> I heard that it starts in the nose. I thought that that was amyloid pathology. I'm not oh, so familiar oh, with the olfactory story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it starts in the entorhinal cortex. In the entorhinal cortex. According to most of the literature. <laughs> it always gets complicated already and very quickly. Um, so, so this tau pathology, we see it kind of going along this anatomical pathway. And so we're thinking it's hopping from neuron to neuron somewhere. How? And the way that it's hopping is via these seeds. Um, and if you're familiar with prions, um, the kind of scary pathology of mad cow disease is that the seeds are kind of like prions, kind of. Uh, we call it like prionoid and that it's prion-like or prion-like. Um, so these seeds go from one uh, neuron that has a misfolded tau tangle and then go to the next neuron that doesn't have a tangle yet, but it has the tau in it and that kind of acts as a seed for the other, the normal tau to aggregate on top of it. So that way it's, it's prion-like. And this is prior to this phosphorylation, or all that aggregation and phosphorylation sort of happens. And then at some point, the idea is that these become, extra, these, these are secreted. And how do the microglia get, get at them is, is a question. <laughs> so that's a, it's an interesting question. So we, we've only really recently started looking at the microglia in this phenomenon. We know it's traveling across the synapse. We're not sure how it's traveling from neuron to neuron. But microglia come in, and their job is to phagocytose or eat things. So we were thinking, well, maybe that they also are eating this other thing that looks like debris to them or something harmful to them. So they could pick up the seed and either try to degrade it or move it somewhere else or fail to degrade it. So how do you visualize these? Can, have people looked at them in EM? Are you familiar with these? I've never heard of this. 
So you can see um, tau misfolding by EM. I don't know actually if you can see it traveling across the synapse by EM. That'd be really interesting. I'm sure someone's looked at this. That's more of an expert on tau seeds and really more of the microglia expert. Um, so let's hear about the microglia. So tangles aren't just too much tau. They're the wrong kind. They're misfolded tau right. molecules. Exactly. And they ta form tangles because they're misfolded. Right. Is that right? Yeah. So basically the misfolding is the primary molecular event for tau without necessarily getting the primary molecular event for Alzheimer's disease. Right. But for tau, it is, the, it is misfolding. And the idea is that some, somewhere in the neuronal cortex, it, there's something causes tau there to be misfolded. Is that right? And then because of, and then everything else is just a result of, downstream result. Right, that's the idea. And we don't really know what initiates that initial misfolding of tau that seems to happen in the anorinal cortex. This is a really interesting question, is why does this seem to happen in the anorinal cortex the most often? What's the characteristic of the neurons there that makes them more susceptible to tau misfolding um, and formation of these tangles? So proteins get misfolded all the time, but they don't necessarily go berserk and make tangles. So, right. Um, or I guess some misfoldings don't propagate in a prion-like way, mm -hmm. and maybe that helps to limit their ill effects. But then some proteins, when misfolded, misfold others of the same kind, and tau is one of those. How many proteins like that are there? Are there lots? Uh, I think there are several, um, but one of the things that's interesting about tau in particular is that it's intrinsically unstructured, so it doesn't have a state that it necessarily, by default, wants to be in. And so when it forms aggregates, these aggregates have lots of different structures that they can take on. And there's some really interesting work looking at um, when you have this tau seed that causes propagation in a, of the misfolding in a recipient cell, that the type of misfolding is specific to the original misfolding. So travels to the next neuron, and if you grind up that neuron and put that on a different culture, you'll end up with a, a tangle in the same shape. It looks similar. So what's tau do normally? Its normal function doesn't require a particular folding configuration? It doesn't seem like it. So its kind of canonical function is stabilizing microtubules, which is obviously important for in things like neurons that have really long axons that need to have the structure and travel along the microtubules for intracellular cargo. Um, but we don't know as much about the normal function of tau as we should, considering it's in every neuron. So of the k possible folding configurations of tau, there's some, you know, n that are bad, that will reproduce and will be bad. Mm -hmm. Not just one, but others, because you said there's specific misfoldings that propagate specifically. Yeah, and there's even some really interesting work of the cells that are susceptible to the different types of tau seeds. So you have different um, tauopathies where tau is misfolded. So you have PSP or Alzheimer's disease or frontotemporal dementia. And you take the seeds from these different types of diseases and you put them on a neuron and they'll form or a mixed culture with astrocytes and microglia and they'll preferentially go to different cell types based on the original form of the disease. <laughs> so it seems like there's wow. this positive, is, is it true that there's this positive feedback loop between this chronic inflammation environment in the Alzheimer's brain and the progression of this pathology, which has sort of made you, made people look 
closely, other than you as well, um, look at microglia. So what is the sort of point of contact, like what is the initiating factor for the inflammation? Is it, is it at this level? The, is, is this a, the sort of start of the infl inflammatory process? Or do we know anything about that? It's kind of hard to say where this is initiated. It becomes very rapidly like a chicken and the egg problem um, where inflammation that kind of happens naturally during the process of aging in the brain contributes to tau phosphorylation and misfolding, but then also the presence of these pathological features also cause microglia to become activated um, and release more toxic inflammatory species. Um, so it's hard to say what the initiating factor is. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that in Alzheimer's disease, uh, the genetic risk factors point to microglia. There's actually not very many that directly point to tau. There's not a mutation in tau that causes Alzheimer's. There's a mutation in tau that causes other neurodegenerative diseases, but not Alzheimer's. But there are a bunch of microglia genes that are more causative. So it kind of, to me, as the microglia person, points to microglia as a potential initiating factor. It's super exciting as a, as a target, a therapy target in the way future, I guess. <laughs> so pe people show tau deposits in lots and lots of other diseases, like mm -hmm. even traumatic brain injury. Yeah. There are these deposits down at the bottom of the sulci, mm -hmm. I think. And those are seen by just looking at phosphorylated tau. Is that right? That's what yeah. they're, they're stating for. So uh, in that case, is that tau like misfolded and un and propagating as well? Or is that a specific thing for Alzheimer's disease? No, you can see that with anything where there's hyperphosphorylated tau, which it's tends to cause too. or be at least associated with the misfolding. I don't specifically know as much about the CTE literature, traumatic brain injury, and whether that tau seeds, but I kind of assume it does based on all of the other tau pathologies causing seeding. So the, the multiple kinds of diseases that involve tau deposits have, I mean, it's, it, maybe they're not exactly the same. You just mentioned why not. But they all have the same propagating uh, sort of progressive property where mm -hmm. there's a little bit of bad tau gets you more bad tau. Yeah, it seems to be the case. Um, something else that's interesting is that you can also see propagation of normal tau that's not necessarily misfolded. So when you have a lot of brain activity, like after a seizure, for example, you'll see that there's an increase in uh, the tau in the extracellular space. And so we don't even really understand the function of this tau release, but it seems to be, in some cases, physiological and not just a disease-based thing. So like tau could actually be a, carrying a message. It could, yeah. I have no idea it, like what its purpose would be, but it seems that there might be a biological purpose to it. That would be something. It'd be really cool. I'd love someone else to solve this problem. <laughs> so in terms of aging, um, so, you, so take us through sort of the life cycle of how uh, microglia, how sort of, I, I know nothing about microglia, so we should start from the bottom for my sake. Yeah, I've heard, <laughs> it's, it's several times in my long career, I've heard people tell me absolutely, positively, for sure, that, that microglia are blood monocyte derived. And I've heard people say absolutely, positively, they are not. So, uh, and these are at different times, so maybe things change. Well, 
What, do we, what is it, really? I think around 2010, we really discovered that microglia are not blood monocytes that are just migrating in, that they come into the pre-brain structures prior um, to monocytes existing. So they're primitive yolk sac-derived cells. Um, so they migrate into the brain and populate it before the blood-brain barrier even forms. And stay there forever. And stay there forever, which is also really interesting because while they do divide throughout the lifespan, they're based on this original population. And you have some that come in through from blood monocytes, but it's a very small fraction, less than a percent of the, mi the microglia-like cells in the brain. So it would take a, a blood-brain barrier breakdown to get a monocyte-derived phagocyte into the brain. Yeah, generally speaking. It requires there to be some sort of injury or there to be something attracting the monocyte specifically to the brain. And if a monocyte got into the brain, you wouldn't call it a microglial cell. Or you would, could you distinguish it from a microglial cell? It's really hard to distinguish them. There's a few markers that kind of differentiate monocytes that have kind of turned into microglia-like cells and microglia that are native to the brain. Um, and functionally, we think that there are some differences that monocytes tend to be uh, more active, so they are better at phagocytosing things. We're not really sure why necessarily, um, why they're different from the microglia themselves. Um, but it seems that they change, the monocytes change a lot when they hit the brain because of all the factors present in the brain causes them to differentiate into something that looks more like a microglia, but isn't quite a microglia. So astrocytes can also be phagocytes. Mm -hmm. And why does the brain need to have two different kinds of phagocytes? I mean, do they phagocytose completely different things? Oh, I have no idea. This whole astrocyte phagocytosis thing is, is pretty new to me, and I think is really exciting, especially when you look at things like synapses, that both of these cell types are engulfing synapses and involved in pruning, both in development and potentially in Alzheimer's disease. Are they equally motile? I mean, the turnover is, is, diff is I mean, it's a different origin, right? Yeah. It, these these astrocytes tend to be turning over much quicker. Is that right? I don't know if they, I don't think they actually turn over that quickly. Astrocytes live also a really long time, I think. <laughs> astrocytes can proliferate, I think, and damage. Is that what you mean? No. But I don't know about turnover, like an astrocyte is born and doesn't, and then just automatically dies after some time. That's they, what I these think. These don't have a life cycle? I don't know. My understanding is that they live forever, and as long as neurons, which isn't forever, of course. But it's yeah, I think astrocytes are more similar to neurons, and they come from a similar progenitor population. So I think that their division is similar. <laughs> so back to back to uh, tau seeds. We can I, go I'm back sorry, to I, I took us off the tau seed thing because I had all well, these we're, questions. We were on a, we, were, we were just at the <laughs> development of microglia. Um, so maybe we go to the next stage. So they've arrived in the brain and they hang out there. And they, form a, they, they do a lot of kind of normal functions in the brain. So, you know, they release neurotrophic factors. They prune synapses that are inactive. Uh, if for some reason someone gets an infection in their brain, they, they try to take care of it. Um, but for the most part, they're just monitoring the neurons to make sure that they're functioning normally and getting rid of potentially neurons that are not functioning normally recruiting other microglia to help with problems. Um, so they have all these normal functions, but as aging progresses, uh, they seem to kind of shift away from these normal functions and they just don't perform them as well. Um, and there's some ideas that they become senescent since they're the only cells in the brain that divide. 
um, so that they lose this capacity based on that. Um, but they also just throughout the lifespan, you accumulate all of these different environmental insults that increase inflammation both in the body and then potentially in the brain via microglia. And this eventually leads to them being unable to perform these functions and letting things like uh, amyloid plaques and Alzheimer's disease build up. Are they, are, are microglia part of the plaque? Are they built into the plaque somehow? So they tend to aggregate around the plaques. Um, and there's some interesting evidence that, so you have the plaque that's the dense core made of uh, amyloid beta, but then you also have um, this halo around it of soluble amyloid beta. Um, and that the microglia kind of manage that halo, but they don't manage the center of the plaque, so they just kind of try to contain it. Um, which seems like maybe it's a good thing, but also they secrete all these toxic species near the plaque, so maybe also not a good thing. It's like a mixed bag. <laughs> so are they, they're pretty much the only cell in the brain that can just wander around and can yeah. be attracted to damage or to something like that. Right. right. So that means that where they are depends on what's happened to you. Mm -hmm. right? You can have a lot of, one person has a bunch of microglia in one place and another person in a completely different part of the brain. Their distribution isn't necessarily uniform. Right. Is that true? The, you showed normally, some pictures today yeah. uh, and they didn't look very uniform. So in, in like the normal adult brain, they're going to have like a, a specific territory basically. You see this nice tile effect where they're not overlapping with each other, but then in aging and in Alzheimer's disease, yeah, you'll see them clumped up in certain areas, attracted there potentially by other microglia or by something like a plaque or an injury. Um, and that seems to be a feature of the disease. So they form a big piece of these, what people call scars in nervous tissue, which are, I guess, scars in the usual sense, but uh, like scars, the kind that stop axons from regenerating across damage boundaries. They stuff. do some of that. And both of the astrocytes, the one that really form like glia scars and in like major injuries, especially like spinal cord injury, the astrocytes really form that barrier, to, which ends up preventing some amount of repair, unfortunately. So I'm curious about the, the proliferation part. So so the, these, these cells migrate and then, what, what triggers a proliferative, or am I completely missing the point on the proliferation? <laughs> I mean, so, or, or is there sort of a, a uh, some trigger, some neuronal mechanism that can trigger that isn't necessarily an activating mechanism, like an, an inflammatory or, or um, immune reaction type thing. Like what, I, I guess I'm struggling to understand the, um, the sequence of, you know, do these, are these things sort of moving around and, and do they get to a point where they need to proliferate and then they proliferate or are, like how, what are the triggers? What do we know about this? Yeah, so they I'm have, sorry, it's so rudimentary, but I, no, that's okay. There's uh, they, so like I said, they have these regions where they're kind of the the microglia in charge of surveying that region. So they have these really long processes that reach out and kind of examine neurons nearby and other cells nearby. And they're kind of testing the environment as a way to tell what's going on in a neuron, um, and then. If they discover that something is wrong with that neuron, they can then become activated. And in that state, they secrete attractants for other microglia and also can trigger them to start dividing. So it's kind of a, a mixture of both the proliferation and the chemotaxis towards something that's gone wrong. Um, there's some really cool new transgenic mice um, that use kind of the brain bow technology to make all of these microglia of slightly different colors. So you can see at a point in time 
uh, that all of the pink microglia divided around this region where something was going wrong. And then you can see them die back once whatever happened is resolved. It's really cool. Um, it seems to be like a mixture of both travel across the brain and division. So you can totally see the distribution changes that, that Charlie was mentioning and whether and how they how they progress over time. Yeah. It seems like if you have, it seems like there's a set point of microglia in the brain that sort of need to be maintained. Because my, my thought was that things just proliferate and they kind of, you know, keep migrating or, you know, they just say, I have no, no idea. So I'm just making Just accumulate up. after a year, after a lifetime of your insults, just, your brain would just be just loaded exploding, with Exploding, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, not like that. No. Um, no, there's actually not a huge increase in the number. So this, this kind of like dying back after a proliferative event seems to be an important part of microglia function, actually. So when you age, your brain doesn't fill with microglia, but the microglia start to not function as well. Yeah. And is that just uh, caused by the normal stuff? Maybe, I don't know, what do people say? Uh, uh, reactive oxygen species or yeah, something like Yeah, yeah, no, oxidative stress is definitely a part of that, and just like every other organ is part of regular aging. Um, and then, you know, like I said, environmental risk factors. So, like, obesity is a huge cause of peripheral inflammation and all of those <laughs> peripheral cytokines and stuff can cross the blood-brain barrier and trigger microglia changes there as well. So it's not just limited to what's happening in the brain. So every inflammation everywhere in our body sends cytokines into the brain? Yeah. Is that true? At least, at least that. somewhat. Um, yeah, I feel like every time I get a fever, I worry about my m brain microglia. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a, a well advised. <laughs> so then, uh, uh, if I, if I can get back a little bit to Tao, <laughs> that that I I understand that neurons are are releasing Tao all the time. So a neuron that's sick and dying because of Tauopathy, uh, it, it doesn't have to die to release. It's not that the neuron is fragmenting and the fragments of tau and the fragmenting neuron fall out and microglia pick them up, but the neuron's actually actively secreting tau for good or bad, and the microglia can pick up that secreted tau from right. a healthy neuron or a still live neuron at least. Yeah, it's probably a, in in Alzheimer's disease. I would think that early on you're not going to have a lot of neuron death yet. And so the microglia are involved in that process. But then also as neurons are degenerating, microglia, like I said, they're surveying the cells around them all of the time. Um, the types of receptors present on a dying neuron are very different. Microglia can sense that. And they'll actually start to phagocytose neurons that are in the process of pre-death that contain these tau tangles. And that's another way that the microglia would end up with tau inside of them later on in the disease course. And then the microglial cell doesn't have to, particularly have to, well, it could pick it up at an axon terminal and then hand it off to a local neuron. So that would carry it effectively across some long distance in the brain. The mic because the axon went a long distance, not because the microglial cell goes a long distance. But the microglial cells can uh, have what you call long processes. How long is that? Is that long enough to carry things from one? 
area to another, or maybe one layer in the cortex to another? Or? Probably not. They're, not. It's, it's long relative to the microglia, but as their name suggests, they're not very large cells. Microglia, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're also looking at, at calcium dynamics in microglia and how this may contribute to some of the sort of changes that you see in aging and, and degenerating brains. Um, can you say something about that? Yeah, so calcium really regulates a lot of different functions in cells. Um, but in microglia, it regulates these functions that we associate with problems in Alzheimer's disease. So it regulates their ability to phagocytose things, um, regulates whether they're secreting um, cytokines and reactive oxygen species. So it seems like a really interesting opportunity to man manipulate microglia function in vivo is to manipulate these calcium channels. Um, and then we have lots of drugs that target calcium channels, some of which are on microglia. Um, so, and some of these, have, uh, we found that they're anti-inflammatory and that they reduce the release of these cytokines that are potentially neurotoxic. Uh, so I'm really interested in understanding how these channels function during Alzheimer's disease on microglia. So I notice you're looking at specifically at CAV 1.2. Mm -hmm. Is that because that is known to be the channel on microglia, or is it just because CAV 1.2 is a very common CAV 1 channel type? Uh, so I ended up focusing on that um, because uh, the drugs that are available that target that channel kind of led me initially. I was initially actually interested in that channel's function on neurons during aging. Uh, and then as I researched and used these drugs in experiments more, I noticed that it seemed to be really robustly anti-inflammatory on microglia, and so very much been interested in understanding this channel on microglia specifically. It's not one of their main channels. Uh, it's not really highly expressed, which is very curious considering the anti-inflammatory effects of these drugs. So really, I am hoping that my research can focus on this channel specifically on microglia, not just via like pharmacology and, and drug applications, but there's now transgenic animals that can be used to manipulate this channel, and I'm really excited to try that out. Because none of the dihydropyridines are particularly specific. Right? That's right. famously true about dihydropyridines. So, you know, nemotopine also affects CAV 1.3, and you're never really positive what's caused by what with those drugs. But using a knockout, get a really specific result. Right, and what's interesting is even some of those off-target channels of these dihydropyridine drugs are also on microglia. So, you know, I might end up doing some of these experiments initially, just starting my lab, so gathering initial data. I might end up finding that the effect on microglia is via a different channel that these drugs target. Um, but I think it's important to identify what these drugs are acting on, and maybe we can use something more specific then to target microglia. So you say they affect their inflammatory profile, but presumably, um, you know, there, there are other, there's other functionality that may be affected. Is there motility? I mean, is, are there other parameters that are affected by these, by calcium, uh, by, by these L-type channels? I mean, we don't actually know that much about what else these channels do on microglia. It's largely been focused on the types of cytokines they release. Um, but I am interested in exploring more of the functional things like, yeah, does it affect their hemotaxis? Uh, we would think that calcium would be important for restructuring the um, kind of cell morphology as well. Um, 
So there's lots of things that we're interested in understanding about these channels specifically on microglia. It's not just necessarily like an Alzheimer's question. It's like a basic microglia physiology question. The uh, anti-inflammatory effect of those drugs is because of some action on microglia, or is it because of Sorry. some action somewhere else? Yeah, no, <laughs> that, that's also a, a curiosity. Since microglia are constantly communicating with, with neurons, um, it does come down to whether this is a cell autonomous or non-cell autonomous effect. And so what's really great of having this kind of floxed mouse model where you can knock it out in different cell types, you can just breed a different set of mice and knock it out in a different set of cells and see how that affects things in Alzheimer's disease. It's kind of the long-term term goal, I think. So uh, I hear a lot of, about whether uh, amyloid is really the cause of Alzheimer's disease symptoms and all that, and there's a, it's very controversial, at least it's controversial on this podcast, because we've had a series of Alzheimer's <laughs> disease guests who say different things from each other. But then, what about the relative role of tau versus amyloid in the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease? Like, not necessarily the cause, because I know it's really hard to say, but where do the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease come from? What is it because neurons are dead, or is it because neurons are misfunctioning? If they're misfunctioning, is it because they have tau, or because they have plaques? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so when we look at what correlates with kind of the classic cognitive symptoms of Alzheimer's, we don't see that amyloid beta levels or plaques correlate well with cognitive deficits. Tau, on the other hand, <clears throat> does correlate pretty well with cognitive deficits, um, and so does microglia activation. Um, so it's curious to me what the disconnect is with amyloid. Why, since we think that amyloid is potentially causing or related to causing microglia activation and tau pathology, why it doesn't correlate either? Why, why is it not lined up with these other features? So the cognitive the cognitive effects of Alzheimer's disease can be detected before there's a lot of cell death, or is that true, or is it not true? Is, is it just because cells die, and once you've lost that cell, it carries some cognitive capacity, and you don't have that anymore? Is that it? Is that what we think? I think that that's generally what we think, because if we do, like, structural MRIs, we see a good correlation with just loss of volume with cognitive deficits. Um, there's a new, uh, well, new-ish uh, marker, um, NFL, uh, neurofilament light chain, um, that seems to be released when there's damage to neurons and uh, seems to be better at predicting kind of that conversion point from like mild cognitive impairment where you don't have Alzheimer's, you just are not functioning at peak performance to when you're actually in this steep decline of cognitive loss. And that's kind of interesting that we might have a better marker of just, yeah, neurons are damaged. Yeah. It's discouraging. I mean, if the, in Parkinson's disease, the symptoms of the disease are not caused directly by absence of dopamine. Right. And because of that, you can sort of correct, because it's a bad, it's uh, regular neurons that are not dead are doing the wrong thing, and that's what's causing the actual symptoms. And so if you could get them to quit doing the wrong thing, you could get some treatment. It wouldn't be, it's not a cure, but it's a treatment, and all the treatments are based on that. But there's almost no treatment for Alzheimer's disease, and maybe the reason is because, because it isn't that kind of disease. It isn't that some 
alive normal neurons are not are doing the wrong thing, it's because you just flat out don't have the neurons. Processes, yeah. yeah, although in, in mouse models you can see not necessarily neuron loss, but you can see neuron dysfunction. Uh, so you'd think that that would, might also be happening in humans. It's a little harder to measure, though. You can't do much electrophysiology on a human. Uh, you can in Parkinson's patients. But anyway, <laughs> you could on mice. Do, what, what does neural dysfunction mean in the mouse model? How is it assessed? Uh, I'm not as familiar with this stuff, but um, calcium imaging is really popular to, to look at kind of what does a neuron with a tangle look like? Is it integrated uh, into its circuit? Is it hyperactive? Is it hypoactive? Same with neurons that are near plaques. And there seems to be some interaction between the tau and amyloid as well uh, in mediating neuron function. So it is a direct measure of, I mean, those are direct measures of function. Yeah. But these are models that don't necessarily reflect the, the amount of cell death that right. we see in, in fully impaired uh, clinical situations. Right. And what's also very different um, that I think is interesting between like a mouse model of Alzheimer's and a human with Alzheimer's is uh, a mouse is not as aged as a human with Alzheimer's. These models for mice, they get the disease much earlier. So aging doesn't become as much of a component, whereas in humans, aging is the largest risk factor. And I can't help but think that that is related to why these models don't necessarily work so great. Yeah, why don't mice get Alzheimer's naturally? I mean, how, are we just not aged them long enough? They don't live long enough. <laughs> is, that the, is that the story? <laughs> that, that, that's not a good enough answer, I guess. <laughs> we don't know why mice don't get Alzheimer's disease. No, uh, they, yeah, I mean, one thing is that their, their tau is different than our tau. Their amyloid is different than our amyloid. So natively, they just don't get these diseases. So when you use transgenics, you typically use human tau. Um, yeah. And, and that's really important because there have been super discrepant results between, I mean, what are, what are the sort of key differences there? That's kind of interesting. I know we don't have a ton of time. Just, <laughs> is there an easy two-word no, answer? there's not that? an no. easy way to answer that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, right. if you just used mouse tau for those experiments, it wouldn't work because it's not misfolded. Right. Way. Although you can induce some misfolding of mouse tau with human misfolded tau, but it's not, it's just not as effective. And one of your, I'm sorry, I know we're out of time, but I still no, had a couple great. of things. The, in one of your comments today, you said that, um, you said that you isolated microglia from post-mortem human brains. So that means that after death, our microglia are still alive? Yeah, this is one of the things that kind of alarms me in terms of the science I'm doing is that I can culture cells from postmortem human brains and have them live for two weeks longer than the person they belonged to. Just microglia or lots of different kinds of cells? Just, we get microglia, endothelial cells can also live for a while. Neurons, it, it's hard to extract them from a postmortem brain and have them survive the process. Um, but microglia and endothelial cells, yeah, we can culture them after death. How long after death? A couple weeks. 
Zombie brain. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, the, what they're doing in there is eating your brain. Yes. Because that's, that's what they do. The process, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I don't want this to get on Reddit or anything. But <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is super. Hopefully, this will be the first of many visits, and um, we look forward to the next one. Thanks. This is Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.